I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 86th Texas legislature. This week, how things have changed under the Pink Dome for good and for ill over the last half century. The 2019 session is State Representative Tom Craddock's 26th at the Capitol, which makes him the longest serving lawmaker in state history. He is properly and formally the Dean of the House. The Midland Republican, who is our guest this week, was first elected in 1968, the same cycle in which Richard Nixon was first elected president. When Dean Craddock was sworn in at age 25 on the second Tuesday in January that year, Preston Smith was our newly minted governor. A Democrat, of course, as all statewide elected officials were back then. He was one of only nine Republicans out of 150 in the House and one of only 11 in the 181-member legislature. It would be 34 years before his party would take control of the House and he would be chosen by his peers as Speaker, the first Republican presiding officer of the lower chamber since Reconstruction. If you want to know how long ago half a century is in the life of a legislature, when Tom Craddock was first elected to the House, the current Speaker, Dennis Bonin, wasn't born yet. 40% of the current House wasn't born yet. Ted Cruz wasn't born yet. Beto O'Rourke wasn't born yet. Glenn Hager, George P. Bush, the Castros, I could go on. Over 50 years in office, Dean Craddock has watched the state and state government change many times over, and in every conceivable way. He's seen the issue set change many times over, although some favorites, like school finance, have consistently topped the agenda. He's seen the parties change, and the players change, and the game change, and the rules change many times over. The only thing constant over all those years has been the job, representing his district and his constituents, and doing right by Texas. Dean Craddock and I sat down to talk on the morning of February 28th, day 52 of the 140. Point of Order is supported by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, joining forces with universities statewide to identify solutions to fragmentation and costs in healthcare. More at standingwithtexas.com. And by the Texas State University System, Texas' first university system with seven institutions spanning 700 miles. Learn more at tsus.edu. And the Texas Hospital Association, Texas hospitals are at the forefront of reform, leading efforts to improve patient outcomes and cut costs. See their priorities for a healthier Texas at THA.org slash 2019 legislative session. When you ran for the House that first time, did you ever imagine this was going to be a career decision? No. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story. So when we came down here, the retirement was, you know, optional. And so I decided I wasn't going to be here long enough, so I didn't join. So you didn't assume that you were going to be here long enough to be vested, right, right. and get the retirement. So I didn't join. And after my second or third session, they called me and said, it's mandatory. You've got to join. I said, I'm really not interested. And they said, well, you've got to. And so they said, we'll make you a deal. You, you come down and we'll let you pick up the time you've given up. and You just pay in and with no... No penalty or interest, so right. I did it. So that, that's the best evidence that you thought you were just going to be here for a little period of time and then go that's, back that's and, not, and, and not do it. It is a, it is a part-time legislature. Go, go back to that first race, Mr. Speaker. So Frank Kel Cahoon 
had occupied the seat previously Correct. and made a decision not to run again. Right. And, and I, so the seat's open. Right. And I'd gone to see him two years before and I was going to run because I heard he wasn't going to run. I was going to run then. You were not going to run against him. No. And so I went into his office. He said, well, I'm going to run for election. So I went back to school. Right. And I was working on my doctor's degree. Right. And so I, and I was teaching at Tech. I came back. Then two years later, I went to see him again. And he said, oh, bless you. He said, I, have to, I don't want to run again. And they told me I had to run unless I could find somebody. I'm, so now for, I'm for you. You're it. <laughs> That's he it. Ba- he basically tapped you. <laughs> now, my, my uh, recollection of, of rereading the history of this was that when he served in the 1965 session, he was the only Republican in the House. That's correct. Right? That's correct. And, he, and there was Frank Calhoun from Abilene, and they used to get them mixed up, the two of them. Yeah. And so he was the only Republican. But Frank Cal Calhoun from Midland was the only Republican. That's and correct. so after the 67 session, he retires, and you decide to run, and you run as a Republican That's as, correct. as well. Is the story that your father told you, Texas is run by Democrats, you can't win a true story? It is absolutely a true story. He was appalled that I was running. He was a Democrat. Your father was a Democrat. He was a Democrat precinct precinct chairman in Midland. That's correct. Why were you a Republican, Mr. Speaker? And I guess it seems weird to ask now, all these years later, why are you a Republican? But I'll ask why were you at a time when people were not Republicans in Texas, by and large? Well, several things. One, I looked at kind of, I was involved in politics in college, you know, as, as it went. And uh, I just kind of had that feeling about it. In fact, I was in the Young Democrats in, at Tech when I was up there. I looked at it, I looked at my beliefs and kind of what the, what the beliefs were in both parties. And I thought, you know, I want to be a, I want to be a Republican. And Midland was trending that way too. Right. Truth. Even even back then. Yeah. Right. Correct. We had Frank had been elected. Barbara Culver became the first Republican judge back at that point. Right. And then actually before Frank, there was a name a man named Bill Davis who worked for Exxon, who ran as and got elected to the legislature. Right. And then a couple of years after you got into the legislature, if I'm remembering correctly, our friend, mutual friend Ernie Angelo got to be mayor of Midland, and Ernie is about as close to being Mr. Republican as you can be in the state of Texas then, then or now, right? That's correct. In fact, Ernie ran for the state senate when I ran for the uh, representative. and yeah. went, They had a candidates committee. You'll like this. Yeah. And so they have this candidates committee, and uh, you have to go to the candidates committee back then in order to run. Of course, they couldn't make you do that, but you did. So right. I went to Barbara Culver. She said, you need to go. I go to this candidates committee, and Ernie Angelo is on the candidates committee, and he says to me, well, you can't win. You're too young. And Bill Heck, who is a Republican county commissioner, had been like this, said, can you lose, can you lose 10, 20 pounds? Because I was heavy back then, so you look better on TV, and I lost 50. 50 pounds. I actually lost 70 in the, in the long run. You over-delivered on your I promise. Did, I you, did, I so, did. So you had your dad telling you you're, you can't win because you're a Republican. You have the party telling you you can't win because you're too young. Right. You're 25 count- years old at the time you run? Well, I'm 24 when I'm at that, that point. At that but point, become- but then 25 by the time you... And, my yeah, count- and the county chairman uh, was going to run for county commissioner, and he said to me, I will not support you, and you can't win in Midland, Texas. A Catholic cannot be elected. And also you were too Catholic. That's or, correct. Uh, you were Catholic, not right. too Catholic. Right. Any Catholic was too Catholic, as right. it turns out. So were you a different person back then politically? I mean, you said you had been in the Young Democrats, but at some point you had decided you were a Republican. If we got to know you then versus the way we know you now, would we see differences between you? Have you changed? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think You're so. You're pretty much who you were. I, that's correct. Yeah. What, what motivated you uh, 
to want to serve in the legislature? Because obviously you said you'd gone to see then-Representative right. Cahoon two years prior about right. running. What motivated you then or two years later when it, the seat finally came up and that you wanted to serve in the legislature? I, was, I just was really involved in politics, and, and I was elated to have done the stuff I did in the past, and I really wanted to be, have a life in politics. You, you thought that being in this was, you know, there are a lot of people, as you know, Mr. Speaker, then, and especially now, this is a turnoff for them. Right. They think, ugh, politics. Why would I want to go into politics? You know, I really intended, my my idea was that I'd run for the legislature and then run for Congress. That's what I wanted to do. Really? In fact, George Mahon, who was the con- congressman from our, and the chairman of corporations at the national level, called Nadine and I, and he said, I know, Tom, you've wanted to run. He's a Democrat. Right. He said, and I'm going to, I haven't told anyone yet, but I'm not going to run for re-election. So I, I started looking at it, and yeah. I've made some calls and then I started looking at the life, and Bill Archer was a good friend of ours, and he came down and visited with us, and right. he told us about his life in Washington, and we looked at each other and said, we're not interested in that. Why would we want to do that? That's right. You know, the good thing about Congress is it pays a heck of a lot more than the legislature ever did or does, right. but the bad thing is pretty much everything else, right? You have right. to... Well, I asked him if they were going to move the capital, the U.S. capital of Midland, and they weren't interested in that. No, so. and then, that, and then <laughs> so, that was the end of it. I understand <laughs> that. Um, so... You win this race, and you go in, and you're one of eight or nine. nine. Repub- you're one of nine Republicans in, in, the, in the House. You're sworn in on that day. This is the same election that Richard Nixon gets elected. I mean, we know about all the, the things about that particular election. So you go in, and you're sworn in the first day. Recall that day for us. Paint that picture, because you probably went in thinking it would be a certain way. I just wonder if it actually, the reality of it was what you intended or what you thought it would be. Well, it was a little different than I thought. First of all, I'd only been in the Capitol once in my life, and that was to have a picture made for my brochure. That's it. Really? And uh, I, my high school government teacher and I ran against each other in the primary, and he'd say, I taught him everything he knows. And, but I walked door to door, yep. and that's the way I got elected. You yep. know, and I was young. People said, you can't win. The two people that worked on my campaign raised the money for me. Neither one would do it. They were both precinct chairmen. So I got them to come together to a little place called Luigi's and had them one said, well, I'll do it if you'll do it. And anyway, and then a lady named Katie Heck took it over. She still runs a campaign. When All I these years one. later. Right. Yeah. So I go to the Capitol. My parents are down here. I'm not married at that time. And yeah. I, I, uh, I come to the Capitol. And you can drive around the Capitol. Back then it was all open. Right. And I was going to park in one of the places. Well, they were full. And so... I uh, had only been, then I'd come to the Capitol and hired a staff person, but they didn't have uh, any kind of an indoctrination program or anything at like that. No orientation. No orientation. Just show up on the first day, you're, you're, you're a member it. of the legislature. That's, that's right. It, right. You swear you're in, here's your office, yeah. which was not much. But anyway, so I drive around and there's no place to park. They said, well, go across the street, which is the lot right down at the end of the street. Yeah. And they said, you can park there. So I go in first, and my parents are behind me in their car. I go in, and the TPS person stops me and says, uh, you can't park here. And I said, well, you know, I'm getting ready to be sworn in in the legislature up here, and they told me to come down here. He looked at me and said, mister, I've heard a lot of reasons why people ought to park here, and that's the worst I've ever exactly. seen. Exactly. If you're going to lie, come up with a better that's lie. Right. Right. Get out of here. And my, and my parents had to testify that I was no, in the No, really, I'm, I'm that guy. <laughs> you, you know, you should tell James Tallarico that there are some things that even getting elected can't solve. Right. You right. look like you're 15 years old or you're right. that young. Right. No one is going to take you seriously. Um, so the reality of, of the first couple of weeks or months in office met your expectations. 
you know, you had, you had been this interest, you had this interest in being in politics. So now suddenly, finally, the dog caught the car. Right. Right. It was, you suddenly it was, get it, your dream. It was interesting, but yeah. it was very partisan. Right. The House was very partisan Democrat. Um, I was the youngest member. Well, if it member. was 141 to 9, I should say yeah. so, right? And yeah. I was the youngest member at that time. Right. Most people thought I was a page or something on the floor. Yeah. And it, it was just real different. And, uh, you know, I kind of got to know some young young Democrats in there and some Republicans. And we kind of grouped together. And I ended up, after the first session, living with, you ready for this, seven Democrats. So eight of us lived together. It's like so, a great sitcom, that's right? That's exactly right. Yeah, right. And so... Um, my first they bill. They were the first Craddock D's. That's, a guy, right? that's exactly right. Roll it forward. That's and right. the first bill I introduced, my, my district needed a district court. A district and, court. Right. And so I had to pass the district court. That was it. So I took it up, and they looked at me and said, well, you, you can't introduce this bill. I said, why not? It's a local bill. And they said, well, we don't allow Democrats to introduce bills. Republicans. I mean, Republicans. Republicans I was saying, so I went and got, yeah. that's why the Republicans. And of course, at that point, there were no Republican chairs. You would right. later, that's, years later, be the first Republican chair of correct. a committee in a century. Right. But at that point, there were no Republican chairs. Barely any Republicans. In the right. House, so right. anyway, I, I, I get, finally get the bill introduced and I get these, get to know these Democrats. And I get them to sign on my bill and everybody thought it was a Democrat bill and I passed it. Bipartisanship sometimes works, Mr. That's Speaker. That's, that's, that's how that goes. So, so do you remember that? So that issue was important to your district and to you. That's correct. Do you think back on that first session? Can you think back and say, what, what were the big issues of the day at that time? Well, the big issues of the day really was, was uh, Speaker Mutcher. Yeah. As far as the House, because right. it was in turmoil with all his problems. Right. And, uh, there was 30 of us that voted against him at one point. They nicknamed us the Dirty, Dirty 30, 30 right. right? But, you know, the same thing that, as far as major issues then was today. I'm know. afraid we're, school finance is a little bit like Groundhog Day, That's right. right. That's correct. School yeah. finance was a problem. The budget was a problem, you know. Right. And then the, it was just not no big issues except for those. For those, right. Well, you know what? We're having big issues about That's this correct. session, school finance and the budget. Maybe it's property taxes, a little bit of a different flavor on it, but it really is about they revenue. They go together, they right. Go, they go together, right. Um, Texas was very different, though, at that time, Mr. Speaker. I went back and looked up the population of Texas in 1969 when you were there. It's about 11 million. Is that right? I we're we're two and a half times that size today. We're fixing to go from 28.3 million today to 54 million by 2050. The state's going to double in population in the next 30 years. Does the role of a legislature or does the work of an individual legislator look different in a state that is only 11 million versus 28 million? I'm trying to understand, again, the difference between then and now. Would your thinking about the state as a whole or your district individually have been any different at a time when the state was so much smaller and when the, I guess, when the world was so much different? I really don't think so. You know, there are more people, obviously. I did the first questionnaire anybody had ever done. I mailed it out in my district back then. Now to ask everybody, for preferences. Of right. What do you think about this yeah, or that? Right. Yeah. I did that, and then a lot of people started doing it yeah. after that. But I think the, the main difference today, there are more people in your district. Some of the districts are smaller, and some of them, like ours, are a lot larger. I had one county at that time. Now right. I have five. Right. And so, and probably I'm going to go back to one county after redistricting because of the growth in our county. Right. So... I don't think it was much different. Yeah, that. and did, did the, the the need to be back home and to connect with voters seem or feel any different to you? I guess if you only have one county, it's a little bit easier to get around and see people and be a presence in the district. You know, it's fashionable these days for people to challenge incumbents and say, well, that person never is, we never see that person. person never around. They don't have town hall meetings. They don't come to our stuff. 
I don't believe you could have gotten to 26 elections successfully if you didn't have a presence back in the district. Right. But the reality is probably easier back then in a smaller footprint of a district right. to get around and see people. Right. I went home every weekend. Right. And so today I don't do that every weekend as right. much. Did you do it because you could or wanted to, or did you do it because you needed to? I felt like I needed to, and right. I visited with people and met people and talked to groups. Right. I went around uh, early on, and politically I think I, I was pretty astute on what needed to be done, really. Yep. And I went to the different groups like the realtors and the insurance people, and I set up little four or five people groups groups that I could visit with and say, right. okay, now you tell me, what, how do you like this bill or that bill? We mailed out bills to yep. them, you know, that type of thing. You wouldn't have email, we didn't have that. So we right, but you them. got input from them, which is, after all, it's a representative democracy. These are partly your constituents. Right. You're representing those folks. Right, and that's what we did. And so yeah. we'd go back and meet with the groups on the weekends. Yeah. And then I was dating Nadine, so, I, you know, she was in Lubbock, and I did that too. And you had a reason to be back in that part of the that's state, correct. obviously. Uh, did the lobby... As we, and, of course, the lobby is used as this word that's supposed to mean a lot of different things, and it has this kind of weirdly, like, you know, we, we don't understand the lobby, and sometimes people think the lobby is a bad thing. They just hear the word lobby, and they think that's negative. I just mean it in a very sort of vanilla sense, the lobby. Did the lobby have as much influence back then as it does today, just in terms of the con contributions that it makes, good and bad, to the process? The lobby was different. There were two or three main lobby groups and they pretty much controlled what the lobby, and there weren't all these independent lobbyists, there weren't all these company lobbyists, it was totally different. Better now or better then, Mr. Speaker? Probably better then. Yeah. Because it was more focused on issues. And uh, interesting thing that happened to me my first day, so I meet my desk mate, who I've never met. Yeah. His name was De uh, Dean Nugent, and uh, he'd been here for years, and he was a very distinguished person in the leadership. And so he said to me, and we, he met my parents, you know, because they still back then you could, they could sit on the floor during the swearing. And God, like, the press almost can't even sit on the floor. <laughs> I know. Anymore, right? I know. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. they did that. And so he said to me, now look, I'm going to cast a lot of votes during this session that you shouldn't be doing. And he said, I'm going to tell you, you do what you want to do. But he said, I'm going to tell you when you should or shouldn't vote for things. And I met a man, his best friend was yeah. Charlie Young Michael from LaGrange. And they kind of took me under their wing, both Democrats, right. obviously, and older, almost like fathers to me, yeah. and kind of took me under their wing and, and helped me with a lot of things. Yeah. Have you done that yourself over time? I've helped a lot of members. Yeah. It is kind of like a pay it forward thing, isn't it? Somebody helped me or reached down right. their hand to me, and so I'm going to reach my hand down to somebody else, right? Correct. You know, and I've found in the last several sessions, people come to my desk, everybody jokes, it's like Baskin Robbins over there when we're doing a bill. Yeah. Help me write a point order. Help me do right. an amendment or well, something. Well, you've been there long enough that you know it. there's nothing you haven't seen. Right. So right. I have, I've done You've that. forgotten more stuff than most people know. I don't know about that, but I've read the rules and most of them have. I suspect that's probably true. Do you think a part-time legislature, back to this idea of, 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 a, of, of the fact that it was a, a possible for you to go back home a lot and that, in fact, a lot of the year you were not in session, so you were back home. Is a part-time legislature a good thing for a I state think it's great. this big and complex? Can I you do. do the business of a state that is the 10th largest economy in the world with all the moving parts and all the complexity of all the issues in five months every two years? I think we can, and we do. And I, I, I believe it was Well, I know you do, but there are some people who feel, feel like it's putting 17 pounds of rice in a five-pound bag, right? I don't think so. I really think it's a great opportunity for more people to serve in the legislature. Back then, you had... You know, a few people, most of them were retired people that were in the legislature at that point. 
And now you've got all walks of life, a real a younger legislature by far than what we had back in the late 60s. Yep. And you have people that are doctors and dentists and whatever in there. You never had anything like right. that. But, of course, you only pay $600 famously, $600 a month. Right, but it's 400 when I started. So it's, you got a 50% raise. Well, that's one bit. Of, of course, my dad used to say if we never met, he'd, give, he'd vote for a pay raise for legislators. Oh, is that right? <laughs> well, 600 a month, though, I mean, in some ways, the problem with 600 a month, with it being a part-time legislature and therefore the pay is appropriate to a part-time legislature, is that you leave a lot of people who could never afford to do that out. There's, a, there's one Republican member who I, I know his name. You may remember this anecdote, but let's not say his name who a few sessions ago when he got elected and arrived in Austin was shocked to discover that he was only going to be paid $600 a month. I know exactly what you're you know talking, what I'm talking about. about. And, and, you know, it's like, well, I mean, that seems to have been something you might have checked out before you decided to run for the job. But the point is there are people around Texas who, no matter what they're doing in their full-time gigs, don't really have the luxury to take a part-time gig that pays $600 a month, especially since you and I both know that as much as they call it a part-time legislature, you work during the interim. Right. You do work as a legislator during the times that you're not in session. But there's a flip side to that, too. There, If you had probably, if you had people like me that would have not maybe served and then gone on to something else. Yeah. Because, you know, I had a business and I was starting out. And I, you know, that was one of the reasons also I went back on weekends. But you got to, it gives you the opportunity to develop a business and right. in, in, in your district or whatever you're doing. That's why there are were a lot of attorneys in the, in the legislature at that right. point. Of course, the ethics cops would say that this is basically temptation, that if it's a part-time legislature, you have to go back and make money, that sometimes you're tempted to use your public office to help you indirectly with your private business. Nah. Not paying people enough to actually just serve as legislators unconflicted. I don't, I don't really look at it that way. I've never seen that, and I don't think that's right. Well, and you've seen everything, so. Um, no, I just don't think yeah. that's right. I, I think you meet people. It right. gives you an opportunity to meet people, but I just don't think that there's yeah. a, a tie like that. Well, let, let's go back to that first session. So you're one of nine in the minority. Did it make you more sympathetic to the to being in the minority when you eventually took back the majority all those years later and you were looking dealing with Democrats. I mean, you actually were one of the people who remembered what it was like to be them. In fact, it was a much more extreme version of being in the minority. Right. Is that actually, a good mindset for somebody in leadership to have what it was like to be in the minority? I think it is. I, let me tell you, I'm, I appointed more women than had ever been appointed before to chair. I had Democrat chairs, and we had before. I was the first Republican, as you. Were know. there more women or more Republicans in the legislature at the time that you served? I don't think there were. I don't think there were many women. Right. And there are no Republican women at right. that point. At that point. Kay Bailey Hutchison came a couple right. of sessions later. She was kind of a unicorn in that respect. She was. Right? Yeah. She, was. she was a reporter when I first got elected. Indeed. Actually, she sat in the, then the press sat down the middle of the of the chamber. I like the sound of that, yeah. Mr. Speaker. Well, I, I was sort of putting them in the gallery somewhere. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. she, <laughs> in but the she, gallery in another state's <laughs> legislature or another room. Right. Yeah. But anyway, she uh, she sat. Across the aisle from me, I was on the aisle, and then she was on the press. We got to be really good before friends. she before she we, ran. Right, we also right. were two of the youngest people around the Capitol. In, in the building. But again, I'm thinking, you know, being in the minority, it gives you a perspective of what it's like. You know, I mean, again, at that point, there were no chairs. Now you became natural resources chair in the '75 session, which was the first Republican to chair a committee in 100 years. Right, and you and you had Democratic chairs. Well, I did. Yeah, I mean, right. you understood what, what that was like, but that was not normally how it was done. And so being in the minority can sometimes be a, like, why am I even here frame of mind? We're the only state in the United States that does that, has both parties, 
you know, to have chair. Yeah. In fact, after when I was speaker, the Oklahoma legislature turned Republican. They came down and spent a week with us, tell us how to do it. The yeah. Georgia legislature came down and spent several days and said, help us. Do you, you tell them one thing you should do is if you want the minority to find a reason to work with you is give them an opportunity that did not go over very well. In those, in those other states? <laughs> no, it did not go over very well. Right. Texas, the state that's most friendly to Democrats. That's not what I thought our brand was of late, but maybe so. I should actually be thinking right. about that. I think it worked well. And I, I, I've worked well with the Democrats that worked with us. And yeah. we had great, some great chairs. I mean, Sylvester Turner, who's now the mayor, mayor of Houston, Houston right. did a great job for us, for instance. Well, some of the longer-serving Democrats, like Mrs. Thompson and Representative Dutton, you know, who over time, you know, you got to know those guys. You, I mean, those are among the most tenured Democrats. You worked with them all those years. Over all that time, you have to develop good working relationships. You do. Right? And, you know, Dutton worked with us, and Sinfonia and I are very close friends. Right. Well, you and Mrs. Thompson are really definitely the people who have the longest institutional. Right. Mem- She's behind me in the number of years. Mem- member in, in the building. So it's 34 years before you, the Republicans take back the majority, from the time that you get elected to 2003, when you come in finally, and then right. you're uh, – you, take over as speaker. How long did you plot and scheme to take back control? How conscious were you of the possibility? How hard did you work? Talk to me about that. My first session of the legislature. Really? I did. Your campaign for speaker began in 1969. I don't know if that ran, (laughs) but the idea of getting a control did, and I worked out a long time. You know, I got busted as a committee chairman twice by two two speakers because I was out involved in races against Democrats. Right. And so then it really got intense last, like, 10 years, I guess. And I I formed PACs to raise money. And I realized that we couldn't win seats maybe in in the cities, but we could win the rural seats. Right. But we couldn't raise the money in the rural seats. So I started raising money, giving it to members who ran the rural seats. Think about what what sort of foresight you had, Mr. Speaker. If you look at the last electoral map from the 2018 election, you look at the Senate race, or you look at the Attorney General's race particularly— Senator Cruz and General Paxton would not have won re-election had it not been for rural Texas. That's exactly I mean, right. It, it is absolutely the case that the red parts of the state, with the populations in rural Texas, and you represent a number of rural communities. In your I district, do. The population of rural Texas may be declining, but rural Texas still elects statewide Republicans, right? The leveraged, uh, the political power that can be leveraged by rural Texas today is still enormous. And as you recognized back then, if you get rural Texas involved, whether it's giving money to support candidates we're getting involved in the process, that has an impact. Right. And what we did, we really raised the money in the cities and then shipped it to the rural areas because we couldn't, you know, you'd run in the Big Spring area, let's just say. Midland right. was kind of different. But you were over there where you could, could find good candidates, but you couldn't raise any money. And the Democratic Party would come in and raise money. So we worked at it. And we, had a, we set up a campaign mechanism right. that, we made a little brochure of the ones that we supported our group, right. raised money for them. We did a check and balance system. Like we'd say to you, okay, are you walking door to door? Now, the people griped about this. We, they'd right. say yes. So we, co- we spot checked it. Every Friday they had to tell us how many billboards, how many signs, yard signs they put up, where, what area they walked. And, if they, and we'd call in the district and ask. This is the, the old version of micro-targeting. That's correct. Right? You That's were doing it before that was a thing. So was John Tower in the – John Tower was in the Senate when you were – He was. Were, he got elected, elected before. But he was the one Republican. And do you know he and Frank Cahoon were related? I did not know that. Is That's, that right? That's right. They were connected. Um, Clemens didn't become – Bill Clemens did not become governor of Texas, though, until 1978. That's correct. That was, was way down. in in 79. So – 
I'm just wondering, I mean, you say that in 69, you're already thinking, even with the nine of you in the House, and that we're probably, I think Ike Harris was in the Senate, right? There were just a couple, two two in the Senate, Republicans. So you're looking at 11 members out of 181. I don't see, I mean, I guess only place you can go is up. But the idea that you had this idea that one day, starting from that small place that you could be in the majority again, I mean, Clemens wouldn't be governor for another 10 years. So it's just kind of interesting to me that you, that you were already thinking that. Right. And what what accelerated it was there was a court ruling. We had single-member districts in the cities. Yeah. Agnich got elected in Dallas. Right. And he spent a ton of money, which he had, and was one of 24, whatever it was. But then they won the court ruling. There were single-member districts. Right. Immediately, and it made it more, more evident that you could win more seats in the cities. So and it I, gave you hope. It did, and then and we, you know, it, I weren't. I wasn't by myself. There were the kind of the Houston group mm-hmm. from down there. They wanted to elect a majority too. Yeah, but they didn't put up, put together avenues to do so it. So it just took a while. Right. And then once you become speaker in two thousand and three, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you about getting in the legislature in '69. Was it everything you thought it would be? More so. Better. It was great. Yeah. It was, it was a heady time. I mean, it was really a major time of transformational change in, in it the was. legislature, wasn't it? It was. And, you know, think about this. If you were a Democrat or a Republican and you'd been in control 100 and some years and all of a sudden you were out, yeah. it was a huge movement in the, in the body. Right. And not, not just at the top, but even within the, you know, among the Republicans elected. Right. We had people, we looked like, well, who do we make as committee chairs? Right. Except for myself and a couple others, nobody no one had ever even been, been a chair. That's right. I, mean, it's a bit, I always joke that it's a little bit like the Democrats today when they try to put statewide campaigns together. Nobody was alive the last time a Democrat won statewide, so <laughs> there's not there's not even infrastructure that has any memory of what it was like to win. They have to bring in these people from out of state. That's true, right? I mean, it's a little bit a little bit like that. So the story of Tom Craddock's speakership will be written one day. Has been written. When I was running Texas Monthly, we wrote it a couple times, and you had me over for breakfast, and it turned out I was the main course. Yeah. Uh, I remember some of those breakfasts very fondly, Mr. Speaker. Um, but the, the story will be written by other people. What is your headline of what happened? Because you were Speaker, and then you were not Speaker. Well, what I, happened? I think that there's a big factor when you look at this huge change, and it just kind of was there. People were unhappy on the, on the Democratic side. The, the Democrats that were helping me and working with us were pretty, you know, just cut out of the of the Democratic they process. They were ostracized. They were, they were ostracized. I started to say that, but they were ostracized. And so it, it kept building, and tort reform was a major factor. And I, when, when, I, when we got control, we ran on the It was in the little brochure we put together. We we're going to change right. tort reform. You said we're going to do these things, and then you went ahead and did these things? Correct. Right. We got elected in, in December. I went to a meeting over at the governor's mansion, and we were, you know, like $15, million, 15 billion in the hole. Okay? And so, uh, well, or, or $10 billion in the right. hole, I think. And then we ended up, I said, okay, let's get in here. We're going to do all this on appropriations. We ended up with $10 million positive. Right. And we changed a lot of things and cut things. And that made people unhappy. Yeah. But the tort reform was a big factor. But, but of course, Mr. Speaker, it was the Republicans who presumably were supporters of tort reform who, who ultimately were the ones who ended your speakership, not the Democrats, because— Well, a, a small amount. And those, small that amount. small group yeah. also was the group that— you know, was not going to vote for me even if the Republicans got control. Right. And uh, 
so we were there. We did our stuff for several years, and right. and I think that was a factor, and it kept building. Yeah, Republican politics and Democratic politics each are rough and tumble. Sure they are. Right, you know, the Democrats are in charge of something. I mean, look what's happening in the U.S. House now with the Democrats in, char- in charge of the House. There's a faction that is pushing against the establishment, the leadership. That happens when Republicans are in charge with the, from the other side. It happens in legislatures like this one. Do you look at it and think to yourself, politics ain't beanbag. This is the way it is. Or do you feel some resentment then when it happens or now looking back over your shoulder at it? The way, you know, the, the way that it went down. I never had any resentment. Right. You know, when I first got elected, I told Nadine, and when we were doing the first that first session, I said, "Look, I'm going to be a one-term speaker." I said, "I'm going to do get these things done, and we're going to do it." And people are not going to love that. That's right. And, and so I told her that. I said, whatever the consequences are. Right. And uh, you know, we were getting beat up, as you well aware, daily by yeah. the press and the Democrats in the back of my. But I have no resentment. It's just the way it is. Yeah. You know, I enjoyed it. I loved it when I was speaker. Yeah. But, you know, I, if I had resentment, I wouldn't have stayed in the House. What was your relationship with uh, Speaker Strauss? We had a great speaker relationship. Did you, did you, you, yeah? We did. We got along very well. You were combatants on the field to play, and then that was it. Really. And actually, you know, uh, Strauss was out there, and they was picked by the, the 11. The, right, the rump group. Yeah. Right, to do it. And he'd just been in the legislature, you know. A couple terms. One term. Yeah. Right. yeah well, part of another. Yeah. And uh, actually, when he ran the special election, I knew his parents very well, and I kind of well, held his mom slot. had been one of the early Republican she committee was. women, right? She when there was. Were no, you could fit the number of Republicans in Texas in a phone booth, right? right. She was one of the earliest. And right. I called and said, what? Because we'd already done, remember, he was a special election. We'd already done committees. And right. I called him, and I said, what does he want to do? What does he want to be on? Right. And I saved him to slot in those two committees. So you were able to work well together even after he replaced you as speaker. I did. And I never had any problems getting a bill set. Or yeah. passed. He asked me one day, right after I had me, he said, what committees do you want to be on? I said, I don't know. I'll think about it. And he said, will you tell me? But he, I said, I'll put it on my card. And he said, you don't need to tell me. Put a card. Just tell me what. You can have whatever you want. Right. Of course, you got to look at it. I could have one of them, whatever I wanted anyway, because I, I was a senior, senior member. Right. But, 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 so he, but he was straight on it. You, you, and, you, and you got along with him from the beginning to the end. I did. Now, when I did the no texting while driving bill, you know, he very rarely, very rarely ever voted on a bill. But he supported that. He did, and it was the second bill they set in the session. Right. And he said, I said to him when we were walking in, I said, if I get in a, you know, tight, you're going to have to vote. Did you think the knock on him was a fair knock? You know that over those five terms, the, there were members of the Republican Party who didn't believe that Speaker Strauss was tough enough or conservative enough. Was that a fair knock on him? I, I don't think it was really. I, he wasn't as conservative as I was. But I think that a lot of members wanted somebody that was more involved in the issues, and he, and he really kind of let the House operate. Well, he, he said, and candidly, Speaker Bonin, we'll come to him in a second, has also said that the job of the Speaker is to lead the House by the will of the members, to let the members determine what the agenda of the House is and what the flow and the pace of legislation is. And as the leader, you preside over the body, but ultimately it's the members who have the power. That was, I think, his... I agree and not, his and I don't agree. Tell me about that. All right. In the, first, in the first term, when I was elected speaker, you know, we didn't have anybody that knew what to do or how to do it. I remember a night that will be of interest to you. It was near the end of the session, and we were living in the apartment. And Nadine came back to the apartment about 11, 11.30 or something. She walked in the house. She said, what is going on? There are people in every room in the apartment. 
I said, Nate, those are conference committees. They don't know what to do. They've never been on a conference committee. They've never been a chairman. I said, you get in there and you take a couple of rooms, I'll take the rest. And I said, you know more about it than you, they do. <laughs> and that's exactly what we did. Is that right? So, I mean, that's the situation. So at a time when the legislature is really fumbling around to figure out how to, how to work or how to operate, it becomes necessary to have more top-down leadership than bottom-up. It does. Right. And I think we needed it. I mean, they didn't know what to do. They didn't have any idea. I'll never forget the day I was sworn in. We did the rules the next day. Yeah. And we, had a, we took them out, everybody down to a restaurant the night before and went over everything. This is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to work. Everybody can say, but we're going to lose. We always lose. We're going to lose. I said, you're not going to lose. The first day or the second day when we were doing it, they were just panic on the floor by the Republicans. I got them back in the corner. I said, calm down. Just do what we talked about, and we're going to win. They won the first couple of votes, and it was all over at that point. They, at that point, they had confidence. Right. right. Same way Momentum. in tort reform. Right. We met, I don't know how many days it was, eight days or seven days. And they thought the trial lawyers have too much power. There's no That's way right. we can possibly pass this. I said, you, we'll win. All <clears throat> you do is stick together, and we'll win. Yeah. But it took, I think it took someone to direct that It's process. a change in culture, is it not? It is. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about Speaker Bonin? I like, I like him. Is he, he, is he doing I think he's everything? doing a great job. Yeah. He's, he's speaking to groups, going out. And well, you've also it. known him forever. I we mean, have. He, he's been in the House not as long as you've been in the House, but he was there more than half his life. I recruited him. Sergeant I helped Arms recruit him. That. Right, yeah. And he helped me recruit some people down in that area. Yeah, like, like you, he knows the institution. He knows the rules. He knows the players, and he knows the, the rules of the game, and he knows the culture of the game as well as almost anybody. I agree. Right. I agree. And, I, and like I say, he's... He's been out and being vocal with groups, letting people ask questions. And yep. He's a, at everything, and Kim's a great asset for him. Right. And I, I think that they'll do a great job. He sets the agenda. He's articulated the fact that he thinks public education finance reform is jobs number one through five with maybe property tax reform as 1A through 5A. I but, had those too, and, you know— we did actually did some of that and had to come back. We passed the school finance right. bill four well, or five you know, times. Is, we never could do it. It's like one of those uh, villains at the end of the horror movie that pops back up out of the lake at the end. It's almost always the case that the monster is not dead. That's correct. Right at, at, at but he's at a, I think he's at the same situation as Strauss was. We broke the ice yep. and more people got involved. And therefore, when you're looking to appoint 40 committee chairman, yep. he had people to go to. We had done. And, and he also appointed a lot of Democrats to chair committees, about as many as Strauss did. There are fewer committees now, but on a proportional basis, it's right. about the same. And he also appointed a bunch of people to committee chairmanships who had never been on those committees before, which I think is an interesting strategy. I think strategy. that's great. I think so I, Terry Canales had never been on transportation. He chairs transportation. Uh, Nicole Collier had never been on criminal jurisprudence. She chairs that. That's interesting to me. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Terry's an, uh, a great guy, and I think he'll do a good job. I, yeah. I served with his dad. Right. And his sister. Right. And so. Well, uh, the family, you know, politics is the Craddock family business. Politics is also the canal. It is. Business. It is. One thing we know for sure is that there'll be the best roads that the Valley has ever had in two years. I hope that includes Midland and our area. You, you, know, you know that. Um, you worked over your time in office. I went back and looked this up with eight governors. Oh, really? I hadn't thought about Preston that. Preston Smith, Dolph Briscoe, Bill Clements, Mark White, Ann Richards, George Bush, Rick Perry, Craig Abbott. Who is your favorite? Bill Clements. Tell me why. Well, first you of seem all, temperamentally pretty much yeah. in, in lockstep or in, right. in the line. Yeah. Uh, we have a, a family joke at our house. When Bill Clements was governor, he called our house every day at 6 o'clock. Really? 
My kids could pick up the phone and they said, Dad, are we going to talk? You're going to talk to governments before or after we eat? <laughs> and they'd say, and he never said, he just, it was there. It was just we there. had a great relationship, never knew him during the election. Yep. He comes, he comes to Midland because there's a man named Stanley Moore. He did business with us, sets us up. I am president of the Republican Men's Club. He speaks there. And there are men and women at this breakfast. He's late, first of all, which is kind of typical. He's late. He walks in. He comes in. He sits up front to introduce. The first thing he says is, I'm going to change what's going on in Austin. He said, every, and I'm sitting next to him where he's sitting at the point. He says, every legislator is a crook and is sleeping with somebody else's wife in Austin. The whole room just turned to me and exactly. looked at us and Nadine. I mean, and, and, you know, and that was our, the only time we met him until after he got elected. Is that right? And then he called me one day and he said, I want you to come down and visit with me. And he says, what do you want? And I said, I, I don't want anything. And he said, well, you're the only Republican in the state that doesn't want anything. that hasn't asked me for something. I said, I have no interest. He, he offered me the Secretary of State's job. And I turned him down. And he, his comment is, I walked out for three hour, hours with he and yeah. Tobin Armstrong. Nobody turns says no to me. I said, well, I'm sorry. We just wanted it. And it built a great relationship. You know what? It's a little bit like dating in high school. You know, when they say no, that's you, what want, them, you that's, want them more. Isn't that right? right? Isn't and that it, how it is? And it built this wonderful relationship. Isn't that funny? Who is the, big, the biggest surprise as governor of those? I don't know. I really like Dolph Briscoe. And yeah. we got along great, and I sponsored bills for him. And we, we had a great relationship, too, all the, until his, he passed away. How do you get along with the governor uh, now? Oh, I get along with Governor great. Abbott, great. I get along great with Abbott. Yeah, I mean, it, it works for every legislator to find a way, whether you agree with that person or not, to get along with the governor. It does. It? it does. And you've just got It's to, in your interest. And they've got, they've got issues, and you've got issues, and right. sometimes they don't mesh. So here's the list of lieutenant governors you work with. I'm going to ask you the same question, who your favorite was. Ben Barnes, Bill Hobby, Bob Bullock, Rick Perry, Bill Ratliff, briefly. Perry and Ratliff are both kind of brief in that job. David Dewhurst, Dan Patrick, who was your favorite in there? Bullock. Bullock. We really got along well. Yeah. and uh, Although there's a case where you guys were not temperamentally the same. No, and we did not get along for a while. Yeah. And uh, I called him a Trojan horse one time, and he got mad and didn't speak to me for about a month, and he had all my bills bottled up. Wow. And I was chairman of Ways and Means in the house. Well, that doesn't work. And he, they needed a bill out, and we were near the end of the session. And um, he can't calls over, and Laney calls me up to the front and says, you've got to let this bill out, or we're going to be in a special session. I said, I don't have anything to do this summer. This, yeah. <laughs> and, oh, is that right? <laughs> and so Bullock is on the phone. Special session jokes are the best yes, jokes right. in Austin. He's yeah. yelling, Bullock's yelling on the phone, and I said, I want my nine bills back. He opened the door to the Senate and said, open the back door of the House. Yeah. He passed them all in one motion and, and kicked them out and said, now get my bill out. That was it. That was it. And after that, we just built this relationship. Right. And I was on the um, budget board, and I remember he was really eating Laney out about putting me on the budget board about the same time. We were walking over, and he said, we're going to be here all day because of Craddock asking questions. See, but when I think about you and Bullock, you're a pretty austere person by temperament. You know, Bullock was a drunk, and then he wasn't, but he was right. a drunk. Right. And he cussed like a longshoreman. I mean, you just all seemed like you couldn't have been any more different. Right. Well, after this first budget board meeting, yeah. after he griped at Laney, he said to me, where did you get all that information with all those questions? I said, I read this stuff, and we got along great. At that point, <laughs> you, were, you were all business. 
Uh, a couple more things quickly, Mr. Speaker. How does national politics affect the work of the House? How did it then? How does it now? You know, a lot of talk about how much Texas doesn't like Washington, D.C. and how different we are from Washington, D.C. Actually, seems to me lately we're kind of more like Washington, D.C. We're polarized. We don't get stuff done. The chambers don't get along. All right. That's exactly what, what you're saying. But I, I don't think it affects us. You know, obviously, politics is politics. You never gave what happened in Washington, regardless of who was president, whatever administration, whatever party. You didn't give that thought. No. I never did. I looked at what we were doing in the state. That's it. That's it. Do you give the current president thought? Should I give him one? Any thought? Do you give any thought to the current president? Yeah, I follow what he's doing up there, as everybody probably does. You like him? I like him. You like his policies or you like his approach to the job? I like his policies. Because, again, speaking of people who are different, you and this president seem a little bit different in in approach to governance to me. But that's probably true of any of them. I suspect you and Obama were not any less different. No, but we never had any relationship, period. Anyway. Right. But you're right. But I think everybody's different. But I like the policies he's got. I like, you know, speaking out and being direct. And I think I did that when I was speaker. Right. Um, is there a point at which you say or you think, I've had enough of this? I have people ask me that every day. Sure. And I... They don't all have a podcast. Right. So I'm going to ask it for this purpose. That's right. And I, uh, I feel this way. As long as I'm healthy and I think I can do the job and represent my district and the people out there are happy, I enjoy it. I don't play golf. I'm in the legislature. That's what Would I you like me. to announce for re-election on this podcast, Mr. <laughs> Speaker? No, I think we'll look at that at the end of the session. But, but, I, but you're seriously thinking about running again. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And okay. in fact, if you decided not to run again, that would be a surprise as far as we're it sitting It would here. be. And Nadine told me I could retire and do what I wanted, but I couldn't come home and she didn't cook lunch and I couldn't come home to office. So, you know. so if you have no place else to go, it may as well be up here. Of course, I don't have a legislative office in my district anyway. I never have it. Just office out of my office because everybody knows where it is and it's easy for them. To Boy, politics has changed, hasn't it? it you're, has. you're, you're still doing it the old way. Uh, Mr. Speaker, thank you very much for making time. My pleasure. Thanks right. for Good. having me. Right. You've been listening to Point of Order, a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, former Speaker of the Texas House, Tom Craddock. And thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, the Texas State University System, and the Texas Hospital Association. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 86th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.